Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. Look, there are so many food magazines and recipe websites out there. I'm going to try to convince you that America's Test Kitchen is different. We spent nearly $11,000 to develop every recipe, and that's an actual figure. Like our Texas smoked beef brisket, for example. That took us two years and 500 pounds of beef just to nail down. So if you want to give our site a test spin, I'm happy to give you 14 days to poke around and try our ATK recipes. Go to atkpodcast.com and I'll set you up. All right, here we go. On to this week's show. You know that one friend who always asks a question right as you take a bite of food? Then you have to speed chew and swallow while everyone stares at you? Well, for the actors in Broadway Sweeney Todd, speaking and even singing right after swallowing some food is a nightly occurrence. Benjamin Barker. No Barker. Sweeney Todd now, and he will have his revenge. If you've never seen Sweeney Todd, and you really should, it's about a vengeful, murderous barber who partners up with Mrs. Lovett, a pie shop owner. Mrs. Lovett disposes of the bodies that Sweeney kills by baking them into pies. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. The musical, currently playing on Broadway, has a star-studded cast. Josh Groban plays Sweeney Todd, Annalee Ashford plays Mrs. Lovett, and Gaden Matarazzo, who folks might know from Stranger Things, plays a character named Toby. And during each performance, between singing and dancing and reading lines, these actors have to chew, swallow, spit, and smash pies. Here's what Josh Groban had to say about eating one of these pies on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. The hardest part in the show is I have to take a bite of this disgusting, crumbly, flaky uh, pie, and I have to somehow get it get it down, and then I have to sing this ballad called My Friends, this beautiful, like, soaring ballad to my razors um, with, just, with just flaky crumbs going all, just having a dance on my vocal cords. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, real food on stage. Through one pie, we'll explore the history of prop food in live theater. We're not talking about fake apples or plastic turkey legs. We're talking real edible food that the actors, and sometimes the audience, actually eat. When did food make its dramatic debut? How has it changed over time? And just how much work does it take to get a pie onto America's biggest stage? I'm Kevin Pang. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. I will be delighted if you stick around. Longtime Proof contributor and fellow theater nerd Eliza Rothstein brings us today's story. When I was nine, I got my big break. In the year 2004, I landed a role as one of the orphans in a community theater production of Oliver. In the opening song of Oliver, which you might know if you've seen the movie, young orphan boys in their highest prepubescent voices dream of eating a feast. Instead, all they're ever fed is gruel. In the movie, you see this bucket of slop that gets haphazardly ladled into each orphan's bowl. 
It leads up to the iconic scene where young Orphan Oliver boldly says to the orphanage superintendent, Lisa, I want some more. Now, I don't remember actually using gruel or, say, oatmeal in my production of Oliver. I think we were just dancing around with empty bowls and uh, no one really seemed to mind. Fast forward 20 years. I am no longer a practicing actress, but I do live in New York City. I have the joy of seeing tons of theater, everything from Broadway musicals to experimental puppet shows. And I recently went to see the Broadway revival of Sweeney Todd. Watching all those savory pies up there in lights got me thinking, why do theater productions decide to use real food on stage? After all, I don't think anyone missed seeing real oatmeal in my production of Oliver. So when we do see actual food in the theater, how much work does it take to get it there? And why do productions go through the trouble? I went on a journey to find out. I spoke to actors who work with real food on stage every night. I baked alongside Broadway's pie consultant. I even stood backstage in the wings of a Broadway theater to watch the food prop team in action. And we'll get into all of this. But first, I found myself wondering, had food always played a big role in theater, as it does now in a musical like Sweeney Todd? So before getting my hands too sticky with dough, I hopped on the phone with Athena Storna, She is a theater and performance researcher at the University of the Peloponnese, in the home of theater itself, Greece. Athena primarily studies the 20th century, but she brought us back to the 1500s to kick off this history lesson. The earliest record we have of real food being used on stage is during the Elizabethan era. Think Shakespeare and the Globe Theater. We definitely know that they used edible materials like bread or sugar paste. There's actually a receipt from a play from the year 1573 that shows a grocer was paid for providing products like sugar and almonds to the theater. This was most likely to make marzipan, but not for the actors to eat. These were materials used for sculpting purposes. Athena says actors would use food material for sculpting props when it was cheaper and easier than finding the actual object they needed. I don't think they were eating on stage, but then we don't really know. These are just assumptions. The scripts from Elizabethan theater give us clues about the use of food on stage at the time. When you read the dialogues, it's apparent that they don't give much space for uh, biting and chewing uh, and swallowing the food. And out of this, you can presume that the actors didn't really consume real food on the stage. There was this idea held during the Elizabethan era that eating was undramatic. And this perspective carried through for another 300 years. We're now talking mid-1600s to 1800s in French classical theater. There was a general belief 
that no serious artistic expression should show the existence and fulfillment of daily functions. So that meant little to no eating on stage. But then, in the mid-1800s, everything changed. In the 19th century, the reason became uh, aesthetic because with the emergence of realism, consuming real food on stage becomes a statement. As soon as realism emerged in the theater, it has been impossible to kill it. Realism rocked the art world. In the 1840s, painters and writers rebelled against the idealistic romanticism of the time and wanted to depict life as they saw it, ordinary people doing ordinary things. We see this in literature. Think Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, a book about a farming family working hard to survive. Realism is in paintings, like Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, a scene of people eating at a regular diner at night. And of course, realism hits the theater. So by the time realism emerged, and then naturalism that soon followed, we have this need to shift to realistic food depictions. Hence, eating and drinking on stage was an effective, dramatic solution to this. But realism alone wasn't enough to bring real food into focus on stage. Around the same time that realism emerged, there were important technological advances in the theater structure itself. We have theater lighting, gas lighting, and then uh, it becomes electric. And this puts an emphasis on the stage and on its image. The audience can literally see the stage more clearly. And so the concept of staging, set decor, costumes, and physical props, becomes more important. And with these compounding pressures to make productions look and feel realistic, a new character enters the scene. The theater director. And then when the director emerges, he starts thinking of what he's going to do how, and starts taking notes. And this is when we have written accounts of ideas and how they evolve. For instance, there's this French book on theater decor written just as realism was taking off. In it, the author notes how to make eating on stage look more realistic. What they do is sculpt the food, say an apple, out of paper mache and leave a small hole in the back of the sculpture. In that hole, they'd place a little biscuit so the actor could mimic the crunch of biting into an apple by just chewing the biscuit. Then they'd rinse and repeat the next night, same apple structure, new biscuit. Adding an edible material would mean that the act of eating would be real up to a certain extent, and hence the actor's performance would be more believable. This was exciting and new for the audience. Here's an example. In 1876, a play called My Friend Fritz showed in Paris at the Comédie Française, which is still around today. It's actually the oldest active theater company in the world. The theater set was constructed with great exactitude. This was a new thing. So in the first scene, there was real food and drink that were served and consumed by the actors, whereas in the third scene, real cherries were picked from a tree. 
Journalists of the time were amazed by the reality of the production. There was even steam coming off of the piping hot meal as it entered the stage. And then if they move from France to Russia a few years later, at the Moscow Art Theater, Konstantin Stanislavski's staging of Chekhov's dramas included scenes of meals and tea ceremonies. Stanislavski. Ever heard of method acting? That was born out of Stanislavski's work. He's a super famous theater director. Stanislavski was doggedly committed to realism, and this came through his direction, in part via food. In 1901, Stanislavski directed one of Chekhov's plays called Three Sisters. When 13 people sit down to eat, it means two of them are in love. <laughs> Is it you, Ivan Romanovich? <laughs> we can tell from Stanislavski's notes that food plays a huge role. Listen to this list of food items that Stanislavski requested for that 1901 production. I quote, three baskets of cookies, savory pate and fruit, two boxes of sweets, a huge cabbage pie for a birthday on a big plate with sauce, one sweet pie, four maple syrup, Chekhov's plays were frequently directed in a hyper-realistic fashion. Years later, in the United States, there was a performance of one of Chekhov's most famous plays, The Seagull. In The Seagull, it's written that two actors come on stage full from having eaten a big meal. In this 1938 production, the two actors actually went off stage and ate dinner every night in the wings. They intentionally clinked wine glasses and chatted so that the audience could hear the faintest sounds of a meal happening. Talk about realism. And we need to point out that Chekhov himself was not happy with this aspect of presenting his plays. Too much matter kills this lyric aspect of Chekhov's plays. And this is a very concrete example of how we cannot easily get rid of realism. So there we have it. Aided and abetted by the director, realism has stuck around like a zombie. Its persistence as a dominant theatrical philosophy is part of the reason that we see productions go through the hassle of putting real food on stage today. Directors started to prioritize it, so audiences started to expect it. And the cycle continued. But the advent of realism happened almost 200 years ago. I wanted to see just what a modern-day decision-maker would say about the use of real food on stage. Barry, I just want to check your audio levels real quick. So could you tell me uh, what you ate for lunch today? I had a uh, lobster burger at John George with crispy French fries. Barry Weisler has been producing Broadway shows for decades. Having done this now with my wife, Fran, for for the last, uh, oh dear, I hate to say it, 63 years. And still trucking. Well, yeah, I mean, the axle breaks down once in a while, but we, we paced it together. If anyone knows how to put on a good show, it's Barry. As a producer, he's basically a Broadway show's CEO. You're responsible for all ingredients of production. Casting, director, choreographer, if it's a musical, raising the capital, hiring the company, doing all of those things that make for a complete show. 
and he has been involved in some of the most popular names on Broadway and beyond. Fiddler on the Roof with Topol. If I were a rich man. Cabaret with Joel Gray. Scottsboro Boys. Falsettos. Oh my goodness, Waitress, Take Me Out. Chicago. It's a long list. For Barry, the idea of not using real food on stage when a script says that an actor needs to be eating is just unthinkable. I would say that if we eat the food, it's always better to be real. So what we try to do is we have a kitchen. It's not unusual to have to cook food or make coffee uh, or have running water coming out of a sink that's part of a scene on stage. Barry produced a musical called Waitress that's all about pies. Sugar. It debuted on Broadway in 2016, and in it, actors eat slices of real pie. There was no faking it. Waitress is a a realistic musical, and if you're having a piece of pie at the table, it was real pie. And when it comes to bringing the stage to life, making sure that there's pie for the actors to eat, we look to the props department. Hi, I'm Denise J. Grillo, and I am a production prop coordinator. Denise is in charge of making sure that everything that the actors pick up and put down is functional. So what I do for Broadway um, is really, it's the equivalent of the set decorator and the prop person on a movie set. We are, of course, interested in when food makes its way into props. And in that regard, Denise has a lot of experience. The first thing I think I can remember with real food was maybe I did a revival of Frankie and Johnny uh, that was at the Belasco Theater. This is maybe 20 years ago now. And Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci were in it. And it turned out Stanley was a, a bit of a gourmand. No surprise there. In this play, Tucci's character is a cook, and he spends the night after a first date with a waitress from work. The whole play takes place in her apartment. The two eat, drink, chat. It's all about vulnerability and connection. And at one point, the waitress makes Tucci's character a meatloaf sandwich. You still want a sandwich before you go? Yeah, I still want a sandwich. But then you're going. You're not staying over. Well, you really don't know me. Wouldn't be the first time one of the guys had yak, yak, yaked about it. Yeah, but women yak too. No, catch up! Turns out, Stanley Tucci's character wasn't the only one with strong opinions on food. I mean, if the sandwich had to look real for the show, it may as well taste good, right? Denise remembered the process of making the meatloaf for that scene. He would be like, oh, it needs a little bit more oregano. And so we send it back off, you know, with the cook and there'd be adjustment to the recipe until we got it just how they wanted it. Denise says that she really can't skimp on flavor if the actor requests a change. My job is to always make it look exactly like it needs to look while getting the actor what they need. It's not just taste and aesthetics, though. Denise has to meet the expectations of realism that are handed down to her by the director while also considering factors like cost, sanitation, and food waste. There's just the the whole perishable nature of it. So 
we try to use fake food as much as possible. I just remembered about a show I did where um, you have a birthday cake and everything but the slice that comes out of it that the actors eat was fake. So, you know, you create this, this fake cake with a wedge in it and then you just load a pre-cut slice of cake into it every show. This gives actors something to actually chew. Sound familiar? This is the same concept as that papier-mâché sculpted apple with a biscuit inside from the 1800s. Make a reusable structure out of fake food, but give the actors an edible component to eat. That early innovation to meet the demands of realism is still being used today, but the stakes have gotten higher. The theater is so in competition with movies now you know, just as as movies, you know, get more and more realistic, theater has to become more and more realistic. And that's hard because, again, you know, we're live on stage and we can't stop the camera. So we have to always figure out what the workaround is. Denise is balancing taste with aesthetics, with sustainability, and finally, physiology. An actor's ability to actually eat, swallow, and continue acting. Her most recent challenge? The Sweeney Todd Pies. That's right. Denise is the production prop coordinator for Sweeney Todd on Broadway. In addition to getting all the other props and set decor built for Sweeney, Denise had to figure out how they were going to source four real pies per show. We knew that two pies a show have to be eaten. And then Tommy, the director, also requested that two pies get smashed. So Denise started reaching out to bakers and eventually landed on Stacey Donnelly, who had also made the pies for Waitress, the musical that Barry worked on. It was during her work at Waitress that Stacey got the moniker Broadway's Pie Consultant. Pie time. Pie time. Let me check the pies. My name is Stacey Donnelly, and I'm Broadway's Pie Consultant. I got to tag along in Stacy's kitchen as she made the pies for a week's worth of Sweeney Todd shows in July. All right, so we're gonna start with the crust. One thing Stacy and Denise knew for sure when they started recipe testing, the crust had to be gluten-free. Annalee Ashford, who plays Mrs. Lovett, has celiac disease, so she can't eat gluten. For this reason, Stacy bakes the Sweeney pies in her home kitchen instead of at her commercial bakery. It's easier for her to prevent cross-contamination at home. Okay, so we pulsed butter and gluten-free flour. Very cold butter. So now we're going to add cold water. Six to eight tablespoons. I have about a cup in here. Once the mixture comes together, it's wetter than a typical flaky pie dough. More pliable than I'm used to. Because it's gluten-free, because this is going to dry out really fast. Normally, I would put my pie crust in their fridge and let it sit for a minute. Not with this. I would work with this immediately. Stacy has her prop pie mise en place on a folding table in her small New York City kitchen. Gluten-free flour, rolling pin, little aluminum pie tins, sort of like what a Marie Callender frozen chicken pot pie would come in. So... We roll out the dough, press it into the tins, and now it's time for the filling. Oh my God. (laughs) What are we looking at? We're looking at scrambled eggs, dyed brown, to look like meat. 
I am staring at a vat, like the biggest Tupperware I've ever seen, of egg curds that look like raw ground turkey. And talk to me about the seasoning in here. There is none. No salt. Mm-mm. No, no salt, salt, no pepper. Why? Because I have to sing. Stacy is talking about the actors, of course. In Sweeney Todd, both Josh Groban and Gaten Matarazzo have to eat these pies before belting ballads. Stacy starts pulling these eggs with a fork, like you would to make pulled pork. And then I just take a fork to them because I want them a little bit finer. This ensures that there are no big chunks for the actors to chew or swallow. And it's actually why Stacy and Denise landed on dyed brown eggs in the first place. I talked to Denise about all the alternative fillings they considered. The pies that we tested were mashed potato and scrambled eggs. And then there was meatball veggie sub and cheeseburger inside. One pie was 100% pie crust. So it was just like a big block of pie crust. And one was filled with brownie. There was chocolate chip cookie pie. And then we tried carrot cake filled pie. And I, I have to tell you that the favorite pie actually was the meatball sub. But then after they thought about singing, they settled on the egg. So... Which, I mean, which makes sense, you know, um, because it's the easiest to swallow. Before Stacy was a baker, she was a professional ballerina. So she knows all about prepping the body for an onstage performance. You know, the voice, you can't have the reflux. You can't have too much dairy because it creates, you know, different things in the body that, I don't know, get too graphic, but... Um, We're talking about phlegm. Phlegm, yeah, <laughs> that word, uh, you know. And it's for a similar physiological reason that Stacy had to remove salt from the scrambled eggs. Salt's a tricky one because it makes you very dry. If you need to project and have a moist mouth to sing and you have even the slightest salt that can change your whole texture of inside your mouth. Though the Sweeney pies are admittedly bland... I found it cool and frankly surprising that Stacy and Denise took so much care to get the recipe just right for these actors. They told me that when the cast inevitably changes, they'll do this process all over again to ensure that the new actors get their tastes and needs met. But for now, saltless eggs it is. How these looking? These are looking good. Ooh, yeah, I'm done. Golden. My God. The, uh... <laughs> The little juice from the eggs, dare I say, looks a little bloody, which I feel like is perfect. Good. These look delicious. They're gonna be so happy with this. Exactly how they want it. She bakes 38 pies in her kitchen each week, squeezing brown food coloring into a skillet of 120 scrambling eggs, pressing gluten-free crust into small tin molds, and baking each batch to perfection. But that's only part of the equation. Once they're cooled, placed into individual Tupperware containers and frozen solid, the pies still have to make it to the theater and onto the stage. And then, of course, into the actors' mouths. After the break, Stacy's going to take these pies on a bumpy journey to the theater, where they'll take their final bow. Plus, we'll hear from one of the Broadway actors in Sweeney Todd on just how important real food is for their work. (laughs) 
Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. I've got one question. Do you believe in magic? Well, I do. And it's the magic of mangoes. From that fresh spark in executive chef Erica Garicoa's mango ceviche in Ecuador. Hey, buen provecho. Están servidos. To the oomph they bring, mix into the polques and luchador matches in Mexico. And to that refreshing brightness in America's Test Kitchen's pickled mango recipe, mangoes don't just influence magic, they create it. From their place of origin to destinations all across the globe, mangoes transform dishes into instant classics. Learn more about the magic of mangoes and their origin stories at mango.org. Hey, Proof listeners. Plugra's premium European-style butter is a favorite of bakers. Why? Cook's Illustrated recipe developer Erica Turner sums it up. Kevin, did you know that the fat content in your butter can make all the difference in how a dish turns out? I did not. I made sweet pommiers, and in order to get that signature flaky puff pastry texture, it's all in the butter fat. Most American butters contain around 80% butter fat, but European-style butters, like Plugra, have higher fat content. In fact, Plugra's premium European-style butter always contains 82% butter fat. And you're saying 2% is enough to make a noticeable difference? Definitely. 2% may not sound like a huge difference, but it is. Think about 2% milk versus skim milk. Totally different mouthfeels, right? Similarly, that extra 2% of fat and butter helps make doughs more pliable. You'll notice richer, flakier pastries, cakes that rise higher, and cookies that crisp more easily. Embrace your inner butter lover. From professional kitchens to your home. Visit plugra.com for more information. And now, back to our story. When we left off, we had 38 pies baked, cooled, packed in Tupperware, and headed for the freezer. We're going to leave them there for just a bit longer while we get philosophical. We focused a lot on the impact that realism had on the use of food in theater. Even in a musical like Sweeney Todd, which is not itself a realistic story. We know that Josh Groban isn't actually eating a human pie. That is certainly not an ordinary thing that an ordinary person does. But we are meant to believe that Josh Groban, the actor, is, at least, eating. Realism placed value on believability in theater in a way that just didn't exist during the Elizabethan or French classical eras. As theater researcher Athena Stornis said, realism seems to be here to stay. But it's not the only reason we see real food on stage these days. If realism was about showing audiences a lifelike scene, the evolution of theater in the 1950s and 60s was about including audiences in the scene. Athena explains. If you think about the way the proscenium arch theaters are built, where there is a a boundary between the stage and the auditorium. You have the fourth wall. You have an obstacle between them. So in the 20th century, we have this quest to lift this obstacle, this barrier between the stage and the auditorium. 
As experimental theater took off, the boundary between art and life got blurry. Actors invited audiences to engage in theatrical experiences with them, using food to make social or political statements. And let's talk about the case of, uh, of the American theater group Bread and Puppet that started baking bread and distributing it to the audience back in the 1960s in an attempt to show that theater should be as necessary as bread. And uh, another connection of bread and theater is the fact that the bread that we make is not at all like your supermarket bread. You really have to chew it, you really have to put some work into it, but then you get something very good for that. If this play is successful, then at the end you probably feel it was worth the work. Since I'd recently seen Sweeney Todd, a classical musical format where actor and audience are indeed separated by an invisible wall, I wanted to see how food would be used to tear down that wall in an experimental piece of theater today. So I headed to a place in New York City called Theater Lab. My name is Orietta Crispino, and I am the artistic director of Theater Lab, which is a, a small nonprofit arts organization in New York City. Orietta wrote and performed in a one-woman show called Let Me Cook For You, which I went to see one evening. I was one of just 15 audience members who sat in folding chairs set along the walls of a white room. Does it really, really matter if this story is mine? During the performance, Orietta tells a story of her life, weaving together memories and important dates, all while chopping vegetables and preparing a meal. At one point, she pulls out an electric wok and throws garlic into sizzling oil. I had a lover in the afternoon. And everything tasted better. The room immediately smells of a home kitchen. Over the course of an hour, Orietta tells us about being raised in Italy by her grandmother, all the while stir-frying zucchini and red pepper and tofu. Orietta's use of food in this production was calculated. She's Italian and intentionally subverts the audience's expectations by not cooking an Italian meal. But it's not just what she cooks, it's how she handles the food and invites the audience to handle it too. Later in the piece, when the meal is ready, Orietta portions out plates for the audience and asks us to grab one. There's soy sauce on the table if we want some. She then pulls a chair into the audience and eats with us. Were we supposed to talk to her, like at a dinner party? Stay silent because it was a theater? In that moment, was Orietta an actor, a chef, a friend? So the lights are on you too, at the same level as me. But I wanted the audience to even feel a little bit uncomfortable, but um, reflect on that basic human relationship or the contract that we have together. Much like the goal of Bread and Puppet in the 60s, Orietta's piece left me with some lingering questions and a small sense of community connection. At the close of the show, Orietta sliced Colomba, which is like a massive Easter panettone. Come. <laughs> have a piece. As the 14 strangers and I ate dessert together, 
We discussed the experience we just shared. I even exchanged Instagram handles with someone. But not all experimental theater aims to build camaraderie. Food on stage can also be used to drum up unsavory emotions in the audience, to provoke, even to anger. Athena told me about a production in 2005 by the director Rodrigo Garcia called Incident Killed to Eat. It used food in such an extreme manner that police raided the theater to stop the show. And I do want to note here, this next section discusses the killing of an animal. So if you'd rather not hear that, skip ahead about 90 seconds. In this one-man, one-animal show, a live lobster dangles from a cord on stage and slowly dies of asphyxiation. Once near death, the actor cuts the lobster down, chops it up, grills it, pops a bottle of wine, and eats the lobster. I watched some clips from this performance, and it was bleak. At times, it was nauseating, and for some, it had gone too far. One night, at a production in Milan, three plainclothes police officers infiltrated the audience and ambushed the stage to stop the lobster from being killed. Athena told me that the director later said, He was just denouncing the dishonesty of not killing what you eat. And he found hypocritical the fact that, for example, when you go to a restaurant, a lobster is cooked alive in boiling water, and this does not disturb anybody. Whereas when it's shown on stage, exactly to denounce this, it is found so disturbing and unethical. Our relationship with food is personal and connected to so many facets of our being. Our politics, our ethics, our upbringings, our survival. Playwrights and theater directors are hip to this, and so they manipulate it. They use food to illustrate, to build community, to make political statements, to cause discomfort. And they will go to great lengths to get the food that's critical for their performance to the theater. I was now ready to see just how much work went into getting Stacy's pies backstage for Sweeney Todd. So, it can be a challenge. You know, it's summertime, I'm trying to keep the pies cold and frozen, so I try to get there as fast as I can. Stacy is wheeling a cart full of pies through the teeming streets of New York's theater district at lunchtime. So, it gets a little tricky. <laughs> Always trying to avoid people, because a lot of times it's, you know, out of towners, so they're not really looking as to where they're going. And then at the same time, trying to avoid every bump in New York City streets and sidewalks that you can, because it's their pies. And even though they're packed well, they're still fragile. Stacy meets the prop crew at the stage door of the Lunt Fontan Theater in Times Square, where Sweeney Todd is playing. Good show, thank you. Through the heat, the bumps, and the throngs of tourists, the pies make it to the theater. We bid farewell to Stacy, and now the fate of the pies is in the hands of the stage crew. The Lundfontan door person, Hector, radios the head of props, whose name is C. Hector lets her know that the pies are ready for transport. 
Once C has the pies, she takes a circuitous route to the prop room. So we are at the stage door where we get the pies. We come through the first door. And then we hit the first staircase down to the basement, to the trap room. So the pies go by all the underground machinery for the traps and the tricks in the show. See, if you go right, you make the wrong turn because that takes you to wardrobe. Who would know? but there are little lines on the floor. It's a total maze, but C is following these neon lines taped to the floor to guide her way. Step up and over here, and you're in the back hallway. You see all the CO2 canisters for the fog show. You see all of our equipment, all our tools. We come up another flight of stairs, and another flight of stairs. And finally, the pies make it to their destination. We are stage left, uh, what we call the prep room. This is the prop prep room. We do the blood, and also we do all the food prep. Unless you're talking to a butcher, it's rare to hear about folks working with blood and food in the same prep area. And though the pies are very much real, the blood is very fake. But C is in charge of making sure both get properly positioned for the upcoming shows. C opens the freezer door. So we have... Two weeks' worth of pies here. We get 38 delivered every Wednesday at 1 o'clock. And we label them, as you can see, and we rotate. We rotate the pies, so we're always using the oldest ones in the freezer. Four pies are used per show, and it's time for C to heat them up for their onstage moment. We start an hour and a half before showtime. So uh, this is turned on, and we bake for 20 minutes at 325 in a convection uh, temperature. The pies go from the freezer into a toaster oven to crisp up and brown. Nice golden brown with a few slits on top, yeah. little fluted edges. They're inspected to make sure the tops are connected and that the crust is complete. Can't cut any corners because this is Broadway, you know, it has to be perfect. Once the pies are crisped, C puts them in position for the show. She puts three on a rolling butcher block, Miss Lovett's Pie Shop, and one on a tray with a few fakes inside of a tower. The pies wait patiently in their spots as the audience trickles in. As the house lights dim and the orchestra begins its overture, it's go time. C and the stage left crew wheel the pie shop on stage during a scene change. They lock it in place, and the lights come up. A customer! Wait, what's your rush? What's your hurry? In this song, Sweeney Todd meets Mrs. Lovett, the pie shop owner. Times are tough, there's a meat shortage, and so Mrs. Lovett's pies are awful. These are probably the worst pies in London. Even that's gone like the worst pies in London. If you doubt it, take a Sweeney begrudgingly takes a bite of one of these awful pies and spits it out. That's pie number one, done. As act one progresses, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett forge their murderous partnership. It builds up to the end of act one when they realize they can hide Sweeney's murder victims in Mrs. Lovett's pies. An added benefit, using the meat in these pies will make the pastries tastier and plumper. They sing about it in a song called A Little Priest. Here we are, hot from the oven. 
What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. In this song, they envisioned the different men who might come to Sweeney's Barbershop and how each one would taste if they were baked into a pie. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's at. Haven't you got poet or something like that? And at the end of the song, We'll take the customers that we can get. Highborn and low, my love. We'll not discriminate great from small. No Mrs. Lovett lifts her rolling pin above pie number two, and Sweeney Todd lifts a cleaver over pie number three, and... And to think, that was just the first act. There's a whole second act where Gaten Matarazzo's character, Toby, actually eats a full pie, the one that C placed in the tower before the show. It's while eating this pie that Toby comes across a fingernail. That's pie number four. Eventually, spoiler alert, in a very Hamlet way, everyone dies. Sweeney Todd kills Mrs. Lovett, Toby kills Sweeney Todd, and the play is over. It's honestly not as morbid as it sounds. As I left the show, I thought about how seeing real pies on stage impacted me as an audience member. How would my experience have changed if they'd been fake? There's an element of believability at play. When you're going to a Broadway show, you expect high production value. And like Barry said, If you're having a piece of pie at the table, it was real pie. But then there was the pie smashing scene. The use of real food puzzled me there. Like, why not just build some component part magnetized sponge that always breaks into the same pieces when hit with a rolling pin? Especially given the great lengths that the props team has to take each night to clean up the mess. There is a copious amount of sweeping during intermission and a whole process for protecting the orchestra pit from getting hit with pie shrapnel. Denise clued me into this. The set has a grate in the floor over the orchestra pit. The pie started going through the grate and hitting the violinist. She was getting, you know, uh, bombarded with pie crumbs. They had to Velcro a piece of fabric under the grate to keep the musicians clean. This is like a lint tray in a clothes dryer getting emptied after each load, but it's the stage manager pulling out egg curds. I didn't get the sense that Sweeney's use of food was similar to those experimental theater goals, to provoke or to build community or to send a political message. So then why go to the trouble to bake real pies only to smash them each night? Who better to ask than pie smasher herself, Mrs. Lovett? I am Annalie Ashford. I play Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd on Broadway at the Lantfontaine right now. For starters, it's not lost on Annalie just how much mess the pie smash makes each night. I can't imagine what our mouse problem is going to be come fall, you know, like, let alone rats. You know, we've, it's New York City, my friends, so I'm sure there's some critters running around the building just so grateful that there's real food in the show. Despite this somewhat humorous image of the mice, the team does not take the use of real food lightly. Decisions are calculated. I think that the most important 
goal every night that you walk onto stage is to tell an authentic story that keeps the audience in the play. There are moments in the show where we do have pies that are not real, but they aren't integral to the storytelling and they would never take the audience out of the show. When we have moments like at the end of act one where we smash the pie, you want the lights to go down and be like, oh, they just smashed a pie and I could see it fly across the room and there's no question it was real. So they're not thinking about it. They're thinking about the story and what's happening in the play next. This I found very interesting. My hunch was that the pie explosion was for dramatic effect, a wow factor. And there's a bit of that. But Annalie is saying here that sometimes the use of real food on stage isn't to impress the audience, but rather it's meant to fade into the background a bit so that the focus remains on the story and the acting. Food is precious, so we don't want to waste it. But I would say smashing those pies at the end is not a waste because it helps tell the story. In addition to the explosive pie smash at the end of Act One, Annalie handles food, what she calls organic props, from the moment she enters the stage to sing Worst Pies in London. Well, Stephen Sondheim wrote this song specifically to be a festival of props. It's written into the lyrics that she's handling dough, rolling it out, and basically prepping her pies for the day. I cut an onion at the very top of the show and I bite a carrot, but I really appreciate and need a real onion and a real carrot every night. It it would just make no sense. It would be so distracting for it to not be real. Part of Annalise's pre-show routine is going over to the pie shop that C sets up and testing the size and texture of all the food she needs to handle. I check to see how crumbly the real pie is because I have to pick it up and I don't want it to break before I give it to Josh. I have to make sure that it's cooled off enough. Occasionally, I'll ask props if they have a bigger onion because I need the onion to be big enough for the audience to read that it's an onion. It needs to be nice and big. And then the carrot, sometimes it's actually too long and I'll have to like break off a little piece of it so that it's not too long so that it'll fit in my mouth and plop in the bowl. And I know what's good for me. That's like, get again, another reason why actors check their props. Sometimes, Annalie will even adjust the consistency of the dough she works with in order to ensure she can pound it on beat while she sings. It changes with the humidity. And so when I plop the dough, some days I have to change how much flour I put underneath the dough in the bowl so it lands on the beat. And then when I punch the dough, I punch it on the beat. And some days the dough is harder than others. And sometimes my hands get stuck in it, so I have to land the rhythms and just navigate this organic dough every day. What a far cry this is from the Elizabethan era, when eating and handling food was thought of as undramatic. For Anna Lee, the thought process behind which food props to use and how to use them is a critical part of her work. I find that I am drawn to props anyways, and I'm often drawn to organic props, things that feel real because they're grounding, they bring you to reality. And where, once upon a time, food was kept off the stage so as not to detract from the performance, it's now included for the same reason. As an audience member, I think that, you know, the magic god is in the details. 
And when it comes to food, that is especially true. Stacy told me something as we were walking back from delivering her pies that I can't get out of my head. When you're working with real food, it is such a little piece of the little piece of the pie, a little piece of the production. The production is the cast, it's the actors, it's the you know, the singing, the dancing, the choreography, the direction. That's really what you're watching. That's the magic for me. <laughs> the pie baker herself focused on all the other parts of the show. And this, to me, is what's so paradoxical about the use of real food on stage. You figure a theater production lasts somewhere between two to three hours. A food prop may get five minutes of stage time. It's one small piece in a massive production puzzle. And yet, it commands the attention and time of so many people behind the scenes. It's the chef tweaking the herbs in Stanley Tucci's meatloaf. It's Orietta trekking to the farmer's market to purchase fresh zucchini. It's Stacy bobbing and weaving through the streets of New York. It's C heating up the pies in a toaster oven. And it's Anna Lee testing their crumbliness each night before the show. Now that I've seen how the sausage gets made, I won't soon be able to shake my curiosity for how it all ticks. The next time I watch a theater production where food makes an appearance, I'll wonder why it did. What the director had in mind. How they hoped the audience would feel. Why the actor handles food in the precise way that they do. And of course, the great journey through the kitchens, through the streets, and through the theater that the food took to get there. But for Stacy and Anna Lee, if they do their jobs right, they'll make you forget about all that. They put in the work every week, focusing on the real food so that the audience can focus on the story on stage. And that, in the end, seems to be the point of all this. I, for one, love that feeling of getting lost in a show. It's therapeutic, almost meditative. Even when you're watching a musical about a bunch of Londoners who are cannibals. Thanks to Eliza Rothstein for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Lindsay Palavoy, and I'm the TV and podcast intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of host production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Our thanks to everyone who spoke with Eliza for this story. 
Special thanks to Andrew Sofer, Sierra Miliciano, and Michelle Cohn for making introductions and coordinating reporting opportunities. And finally, a big shout out to Liz Capistrano and the entire Sweeney Todd team for helping Eliza get backstage. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, The Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.